0: Hi everyone, welcome to Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. I am your host, Jareth Rossman. So, here we are, episode 5. There's a lot to unpack this episode, so I'm just going to jump right in. Now, last week I wanted to touch on a couple of topics, but I ended up running out of time. And if you missed last week's episode, those topics were, first, the million dollar question. Will I ever drink again, and can I do it responsibly? And I wanted to share the positive and negative feedback I've received since episode 2 regarding the Daily 5. But, as always, I'm going to start this week's episode by finishing last week's story and coincidentally, my last week in treatment, graduation week. Now, as I mentioned last week, we were all feeling pretty good mentally and emotionally after finishing family week. And at that point, I probably had 27 or 28 days without alcohol And because of my newfound long-term sobriety, yes, that was long-term for me. High school was probably the last time that I experienced that many days sober. And that's pretty pathetic to think about, but we're just going to let the past be the past and focus on the present here. So again, I've got almost four weeks sober. I'm feeling really good and I'm out in seven days. I'm on easy street. What could possibly go wrong? Well, I'll tell you. It's something called a recommendation. And based on my experience and conversations with other rehabbers, this happens at most treatment centers. So what is the recommendation and why was it a problem? Great questions. And here's your answers. As you're preparing to leave treatment... All of the counselors get together and decide on a post-rehab recommendation to deliver to you and your caregiver at the time, whether it be the courts, your parents, or your spouse. And this recommendation typically consists of three options. First options is extended care. Now, with this option, you remain at the facility for an additional 60 to 90 days, but with more freedoms like having your car, your own room, and the ability to come and go as you please, within certain time frames. The second option is sober living or transitional living. And for those that don't know, this is a house shared by 6 to 20-ish people, depending on the size of the house, usually all of the same gender, with rules and guidelines in place to help create a sober environment while transitioning back into the real world. It's honestly a lot like a frat house, except without the alcohol and drugs and partying? Well, sometimes... But more on that later. Now the last option or potential recommendation is for you to just go back home and start your life again. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I've been a model rehabber, all the counselors love me, and I've got my own house to go home to. My bags are packed. I'm headed home. Mm, not so fast, buddy. Now, realistically in my mind, I know there's a chance that they're going to recommend a sober living home And I also know that they usually recommend a house outside of your hometown because of the whole people, places, and things idea. And what that means is they don't want you going back immediately to the same people and places and doing the same things as you were when you were drinking and drugging. So strategically, I start preparing my list of all the reasons that's not possible. First and foremost, I'm not paying for that. I already have a mortgage to pay for. And secondly, how is living with a bunch of random dudes at a random house in a random city going to help me? I don't need their help. And lastly, I've got a job to get back to. I can't take any more time off of work. Now, just add a little more drama. When they make this recommendation, they bring your caregiver to the facility. So for me, it was me and my parents and all of the counselors in a room. And as soon as I walked in, I could tell something was up. The tension was palpable, and my all radar started going off. Half of the counselors wouldn't even look at me. So my primary counselor in treatment breaks the ice and just rips the band-aid right off. I'll never forget those words. She said, After much discussion and debate based on Jareth's situation, we think it's best if he does extended care and spends an additional 90 days in treatment. What the f- Excuse me? Wait, what? You can't be serious. I've done everything y'all have asked of me. There's no shot in hell I'm spending an additional one day after my 34 days are over. Things got heated quickly, and I immediately learned why the tension was so high. Apparently, there was a big disagreement between my counselors regarding the recommendation. The majority recommended that I stay, but the two counselors I was closest with actually recommended that I go to a sober living. Now my parents, they didn't know what to think because again, they're going off the advice of the medical professionals. So it's like, well, if they say he needs to stay, then he probably needs to stay. And for me, I was so caught off guard that I completely forgot about my strategic list of reasons on why I couldn't go to a sober living. And then I was like, wait, they're not even talking about sober living, much less going home, and I didn't make a list on reasons why I can't spend another 90 days in treatment. Now, thankfully for me, a decision doesn't have to be made in that exact moment, because there's still a few more days until my 34 days were over. So naturally, the next couple of days were spent trying to figure out what I was going to do. My parents decided to do a bunch of research on extended care and sober living homes in the area. Now, there's good news and bad news. The good news was that extended care turned out to be very expensive, like five or six grand a month, and insurance wouldn't cover it. And honestly, I think my parents would have paid for it, but after a lot of prayer and research, I don't think they even believed that was the best option for me. Now, the bad news, at least in my mind, the option of me going back home right after treatment was completely off the table. And deep down, I knew going back home wasn't the best option either, because as I had mentioned before, going back to the real world was really scary at that point in my life. So that settles it. I'm off to a sober living home. Now the last day in treatment was actually really bittersweet. I'm excited to be leaving, but again, I'm scared. And I was going to have to say goodbye to a lot of people that I would became close with, And I knew I would probably never see or talk to a lot of them again. I remember packing that morning thinking about all the crazy memories, good and bad, from the time a guy with HIV was waving a needle around screaming he was going to infect everyone to the life-changing moment I mentioned in episode 2 that I said I would explain later when I decided to give this alcohol-free life a chance. But more on that shortly. Now on the last day before leaving, something really cool happens. Your graduation. All of the counselors, rehabbers, and your family sit in a room, a lot like family week, with you being the center of attention. But this time, it's the best type of attention. They pass around a rock, and each person in the room says something positive about you while placing a positive emotion in your rock. For instance, someone might say, Jareth, in your rock, I'm putting a lifetime of courageousness or happiness. It may sound a little corny, but it's one last positive experience before you walk out of those doors and enter the real world. And that's exactly what I did, but with a little extra pep in my step. Now, that's where my journey and treatment ends. I'll continue to share facets of my journey, specifically around my initial four to six months, as I think those months are critical for any alcoholic or addict choosing or debating a life of sobriety. But before I move on, I want to close my treatment chapter by saying I shared my experience in treatment for a variety of reasons, but if you only take away one thing from everything I've talked about, I want it to be this. Treatment is good. I feel like there's such a negative connotation when saying someone went to treatment or rehab, and that has to change. There's nothing negative about someone trying to change their life into a positive whether it was their decision, the court's decision, or a loved one's decision. How can we encourage people to seek the help they need if their biggest concern is the label of alcoholic or addict being applied to them because they went to a rehab? When someone goes back to school, we encourage it. When someone joins the gym, we encourage it. When someone gets a job, we encourage it. They're doing those things to better themselves. So why aren't we encouraging people to go to treatment to better themselves? It's a societal issue and a big one. How do I know that? Because when I ask people that are struggling and seeking help, if they've considered treatment 10 out of 10 times, they have an excuse on why they can't go. And it usually centers around not wanting their family to find out about their issue, their job to find out about their issue, their friends. And that's a problem. How are addicts and alcoholics supposed to get the help they need if they're more worried about the negative labels it will create than the actual help they're seeking to get and so desperately need? It's 34 days for the rest of their lives. Seems like an awesome idea to me. I wear it like a badge of honor now. Imagine a world where people encourage people to go to rehab or treatment. It would be a beautiful place because as I mentioned in the first episode, the result would be a better husband, a better employee, a better friend, and just an overall better person in general. Anyways, I think you get my point. But if you do have any questions or want any more feedback about treatment in general, just reach out. I'm more than happy to help in any way I can. So now I'm going to get off my soapbox and shift my focus Because this next topic is critical to anyone in recovery, no matter if they've been sober for two days or two decades. And the topic or question I should say is this, will I ever drink again? And let me explain why this question is so prevalent regardless of your length of sobriety. And honestly, I think the length of someone's sobriety determines the context of the question and the answer. And here's what I mean by that. When I was new into treatment, I kept asking myself, can I drink again after this? And I kept thinking, well, once I get out of here, I'll have this little problem under control and can most definitely start drinking again. Now, as I mentioned, the context changes once you have long-term sobriety under your belt. Because now the context is more like, you've made all these positive changes and you've got your alcohol problem under control So don't you think you can drink responsibly? Like have one or two here and there? And honestly, I still ask myself that question to this day. So what I'm gonna do is talk to each situation separately, as a person fresh into recovery and as someone with long-term sobriety. Now when I was fresh into recovery, I kept hearing that recovery only worked if I were committed to never drinking or drugging again. Um, excuse me? That's a huge commitment, especially for someone that's been sober for like six or seven days. You're telling me that I have to quit the one thing that has been my best friend and problem solver for years and for some people decades? And to top it off, I have to commit to quitting forever? Now, think about life in general. How many things do we commit to forever as human beings? Not many. The best example would be marriage. And even in that circumstance, we essentially sign a contract with the government, and statistically, about 50% of the time, we end that lifelong commitment early. Now, remember in episode 2, and earlier in this episode, when I referenced that life-changing moment? Well, lucky for me, that moment happened very early in treatment, but it was strange Because simultaneously, while I was telling myself I could drink again after this was all over, an internal competition within myself was developing. And what I mean by that is after 7 or 8 days in treatment, I realized that I would have 34 days sober once I left treatment and my competitive subconscious became my conscious. It was no longer about whether I should drink or can I drink again, it was solely about the competition. How many days can I go without drinking? It was a battle between my good conscious and my bad conscious. And because of my competitive nature, there was no way I was going to let my negative conscious win. And when I realized that, my life changed when I made that commitment to never drink again. And I think it's important for people to find what will fuel them and motivate them to make that same decision when they're fresh into recovery. I can sit there and tell them how beautiful and wonderful their life will become if they make the same decision to give up alcohol or drugs completely, but that's not enough, and it never will be to that person in the moment. They've got to find their own internal motivation, and when they do, that's when the real change happens. And honestly, I still use that competition as motivation to this day. Now, as I mentioned before, the context of that question and answer changes and evolves the longer you've been sober. Now, I'm not really good at a whole lot, but what I am really good at is learning from others that are good at things. And I specifically remember connecting with one older gentleman who was a recovered alcoholic. He would come speak to us every Friday morning in treatment, and for whatever reason, I really related to what he had to say. I remember him saying that he went to weddings to get hammered. Yep, me. He went to crawfish boils to get hammered. Yep, me. When he cooked at home, a 30-minute meal took five hours, because guess what? He was getting hammered. Yep, me. But now he goes to weddings to see the unification of love. Okay, I can see that. And now he goes to crawfish boils to actually enjoy the crawfish. Okay, okay, I'm liking this. And if you ever see me at a crawfish boil, mind your business. When you look down at my massive pile of sucked heads and pinched tails, it's a southern thing. And when he cooks a meal, it's to enjoy the actual food. Okay, okay, okay. That sounds like a novel idea I can get on board with. But the one thing he said that resonates with me five years later is that after he had about 10 years of sobriety the first time, he thought he could manage his alcohol and he did for the first few months. But after that, his alcoholism was back and 10 times worse than before. And for some reason, that has stuck with me to this day. So yes, While I do feel like I could have a drink, here and there, and be fine, I also think, what the hell is the point? I don't want one glass of wine or two. I want the whole damn cellar. I never drank because I like the taste. I drank because I like the feeling. And once I reach that feeling I'm looking for, I may not stop drinking for six months straight. Seriously, as the big book states, one is too many and a thousand is never enough for us alcoholics. And like I explained to someone recently, even if I did control my drinking, I'm one catastrophic personal event from consuming a gallon of vodka every single day again. I mean, the juice just isn't worth the squeeze for me. Plus, if I'm going to pursue being the best version of me, day in and day out, one or two drinks here and there is only going to hinder that pursuit. It would make The Daily Five pointless because I know that optimal mental, physical, and emotional fitness isn't possible when I'm drinking, whether it's one vodka or a gallon of it. And that leads me to the last topic of the episode, The Daily Five Feedback. Now, I've received a bunch of feedback regarding The Daily Five, and thankfully, most of it has been positive. The communications I've had with people have made all of this work very rewarding, but at the same time, I also asked people to share with me any of their hurdles they've experienced implementing the Daily Five. To me, hearing and understanding the hurdles is just as important as hearing the positives. And I want to share those hurdles with you. Maybe you can relate, or even better, maybe you have recommendations for what's worked with your life. So, the two biggest hurdles to implementation are, I don't need to do that because I like who I am as a person. And, probably the biggest one, I just don't have the time. As I did before, I'm going to tackle each one individually. For the first one, I like who I am as a person. Now believe me when I say I can relate to that. I understand and empathize with that exact thought process. But what I would say to that is that if you like who you are now, you'll absolutely love the person you have the potential to become. One person said, Well, I really like food, and I'm going to eat what I want because I enjoy it, so there's no point in going to the gym because I'm not going to diet anyway. Okay, so let's break that down very quickly. I get wanting to enjoy food. Just ask Amanda. That's my fiancé, for those that don't know. I'm the biggest Oreo connoisseur on the planet. But that isn't an excuse to not maximize my physical fitness. You can still work on yourself physically and enjoy food. Think about how much better you'd feel if you were in great physical shape and you enjoyed really good food. The two can live in harmony. It's not a one or the other deal. Being in good physical shape has more mental and emotional benefits than I can list in this episode. Remember that whole fleeting feeling narrative I gave about spending money? The same can be applied here. Yes, eating a hamburger may make you feel good in the moment, But that feeling quickly extinguishes, and now you've got to find the next comforting meal to make you feel better. Why not shift the mindset and invest a few minutes each day in your physical fitness, because I promise you, that feeling isn't fleeting. You feel good all day, not just in the moment. Another example I heard was around mental fitness. I asked if they were reading each day. The response? I don't need to read. I use my brain every day at work. Okay, I get that too. I do that too. But how do you expect to grow and evolve as a person if your primary mental stimulation derives from your job? Reading expands your knowledge, improves your vocabulary, empowers you to empathize with others, and most importantly, reduces stress. I bet you can't say that same thing for your so-called brain activity at work. For a lot of people, the brain activity at work increases stress. And these aren't benefits that Jareth is coming up with These are proven by science. Okay, again, I'm going off my soapbox, but my point is we need to shift our way of thinking. And I get so passionate about this topic because I want each of you to feel the same way I do each day. None of this comes from a place of malice. It comes from my desire to help people be the best version of themselves because I know how awesome and beneficial that feeling is. Now the other hurdle, and biggest one for most people, is time. A number of people have said specifically, I can't wait till you have kids. You'll see what it's like. Well, I can't wait either, but they're right. I don't have kids, and I don't understand the true time commitment to raising children. But my response is this. I do know that people with kids still train and run marathons, start businesses and run multi-million dollar companies, and win Nobel Peace Prizes. And all of those require an extraordinary amount of time. But again, it's a shift in thinking. Instead of saying, I just don't have time because, you should be thinking, I'm going to find a way to make time. I'm going to get that quick jog first thing in the morning or do some push-ups while I'm getting ready for work and then listen to a few minutes of a book after I drop the kids off at school and head to work. This plan isn't designed to be a burden or a waste of time. It's designed to help you emotionally and be an effective use of your time. Plan your day out in advance. My entire day is planned in advance. The time I'm waking up, the outfit I'm going to wear, the food I'm going to eat, it's all planned the day before. And a quick life hack, a lot of people say to start your day by making your bed. It's the first thing you can accomplish. I disagree. The first thing you can accomplish is waking up when your alarm goes off the first time. Just trust me when I say it gets your day started off in the best way possible because it builds momentum for the day. Now, all of that may sound exhausting, but planning my day out allows me more free time. I try to control my day instead of letting my day control me. As someone once told me, there's freedom in structure. And as mentioned before, each aspect only takes a few minutes each day. I mean, of course there are days I don't want to go to the gym or listen to a book, But I know those are the most important days to do them because when you do it, after not wanting to do it, you feel accomplished and more importantly, again, it builds your momentum and your love for the process. And as I've stated before, we have to fall in love with the process. Now I'm a big quote guy if you haven't realized, so I want to end this episode with a quote by the English novelist George Eliot and that quote is this, it is never too late to be who you might have been. As always, I want to thank you for listening. Please tune in next week as I start the next chapter of my journey, my 90 days in a sober living home, and I also talk about the importance of being of service to others. Again, thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll tune in next week for another episode of Recovery Road, The Intersection of Life and Sobriety.